0: True or false, it is time to end the war on terror. That's what we are here to debate. This is another verbal matchup from Intelligence Squared US. I'm John Donvan of ABC News. Two teams will be arguing that proposition from opposite sides for it and against it. And all of our debaters come at this topic from first-hand experience. They include security expert Peter Bergen, who as a journalist interviewed Osama Bin Laden, and Peter's partner, Juliette Kayyem, who in the Obama administration was an Assistant Secretary for Homeland Security. <laughs> Opposing them at the facing table, Mike Hayden, who ran the CIA and before that the National Security Agency. <laughs> and Richard Falkenrath, who advised President Bush on Homeland Security, then moved to New York City to become Deputy Commissioner of Counterterrorism. So all four of these people know what they are talking about, and yet they disagree on calling an end to the war on terror. All of them are dedicated to winning you over, because you, our live audience, you will decide who wins. We're going to ask you, by the time the debate has been concluded, to vote twice, once before and once again afterwards. And the team that has changed its numbers the most, changed most of your minds, will be named our winner. So on to the debate, round one Opening statements from each debater in turn. Speaking first for the motion, I'd like to introduce Peter Bergen, a CNN national security analyst. He's director of national security studies at the New America Foundation and a best-selling author. In 1997, he traveled to Afghanistan and conducted Osama bin Laden's first television interview. And Peter, I just want to share with you the fact that even your opponents concede that your knowledge of the operational details of terrorist groups is encyclopedic. I don't know if that's a psych-out or, or not, but I hope you can take it as a compliment.
1: I, I do, thank okay, you. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, Peter Bergen. Thank you. My own connection to this story came um, when the Trade Center was bombed for the first time in '93. I traveled to Afghanistan, produced a documentary about the threat we faced from Afghanistan, and then, of course, interviewed Bin Laden. I've written three books on the subject of al-Qaeda. From a self-interested point of view, I have every incentive to say The threat that al-Qaeda and terrorism poses to us remains very serious. But in good conscience, I simply can't make that argument. War is no longer the most appropriate way to look at the problems we face today. Our singular focus on terrorism also masks many more pressing problems. Our crumbling infrastructure, decaying schools, deeply serious economic problems, preventing nuclear war between Pakistan and India, preventing a nuclear War between North Korea and South Korea, managing the rise of China, which, while we've been sort of distracted by the war on terror, has uh, quietly expanded its influence in Africa and in Southeast Asia. and we say we want the war on terror, it's time for it. the war on terror to end, we don't mean we should precipitously pull out of Afghanistan, but we do mean that it's time to stop conceiving our principal national security goal – as the defeat of terrorists, when putting, for instance, our own economic house in order, will do far more to prepare us for the next real war we will inevitably face at some point in the future. The war on terror, as everybody in the audience knows, cost the American public at least a trillion dollars in expenditure, of course got us into the catastrophic Iraq war. Further trillions on both our intelligence and homeland national security apparatus resulted in policies such as coercive interrogations and extraordinary renditions. Key American national, national security officials now say that al-Qaeda is on its last legs. John Brennan, Liam Panetta said that the strategic defeat of al-Qaeda is within sight. General David Petraeus has said the same, sort of, uh, made the same sort of comments recently. None of these gentlemen can be considered to be defeatist or soft on terrorism. So is this premature trium- triumphalism the claim that al-Qaeda is on its last legs? Well, I think the claim is, is, is well justified. I mean, the leadership of al-Qaeda has been ju- completely decimated in a campaign of drone attacks. The most dangerous job in the world right now has been al-Qaeda's number two. There have been about 20 of them since uh, uh, 2008, including most recently the group's number two, Atiyah Rachman, who was killed just a, few week, uh, just a week ago. Al-Qaeda hasn't carried out a successful attack in the West since the 7-7 attacks in London six years ago. Al-Qaeda hasn't killed a single American in the United States since 9-11. And the, everybody in the audience knows very well that the threat from terrorism has actually dramatically receded in the years since the 9-11 attacks. And that's in part because al-Qaeda and bin Laden have been losing the war of ideas in the Muslim world for years. In the Arab Spring, there's not a single revolutionary is carrying a single picture of Osama bin Laden. Bin Laden's ideas have been completely absent from the Arab Spring. Uh, there hasn't been a single flag burning in the Arab Spring of an American flag or even of an Israeli flag. So bin Laden's foot soldiers' ideas... and and leadership is simply absent from this enormously important phenomenon in the Arab world. I would submit to you in the audience if the death of the founder and leader of Al-Qaeda isn't the point where we can't say the war on terror is over and then add to that the destruction of almost its entire top leadership, its absence in the revolutions across the Middle East, its inability to mount any kind of attack on the United States for a decade isn't the point to end the war on terror, when will that point be? We say it's now. Thank you, Peter Bergen. Our proposition is it's time to end the war
0: on terror. And here to speak against this motion, Michael Hayden, an Air Force four-star general. He's former director of the National Security Agency and the Central Intelligence Agency. He has overseen virtually every branch of the intelligence community. He is now a principal at the Chertoff Group. And I I understand, uh, Mike, you have a, a great deal of Pittsburgh in you. I I do. And and, and that Pittsburgh uh, returned the affection by naming a highway, stretch of highway after you.
2: Actually, it's a street right next to Heinz Field, and the first question I asked was, can I park there during football games? (laughs) (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, Michael Hayden. Well, good evening, and thanks for the opportunity to talk about such an important topic. And this really is an important topic. It's not something that we should just decide idly. It's not something we should decide because we're merely in a celebratory mood. George Tenet was the DCI, the Director of Central Intelligence. In 1999, sent a note out to all of us in the intelligence community saying, we're at war with al-Qaeda. And George was. But America wasn't. America went to war with al-Qaeda shortly after the attacks, on September 11, 2001. Two successive American presidents have defined us as being at war with al-Qaeda. The American Congress has defined us as being being at war with al-Qaeda, and the American court system has defined us as being at war with al-Qaeda when a defendant, attempting to claim he had been denied his right to a speedy trial because he had been in detention for several years, his claim was rejected by the court, saying that we, as a nation at war, had a right to detain him as a combatant. Now, we could discuss troop levels in Iraq, the rate of withdrawal from Afghanistan, a whole bunch of other details. But that's not the point I think Rich and I want to make. The point we want to make is the legal construct, the legal belief that we are a nation at war. And we have a right to use the legal tools and the legal authorities that a nation at war is allowed to use. What it is we're supporting is to keep all available tools on the table, to keep a menu of options from law enforcement, diplomacy, or to armed conflict in order to keep you safe. I assume everyone here is happy that Osama bin Laden was killed on the morning of the second of May. Let me give you thank okay. Thank you. Let me give you a slightly different description of that event. A heavily armed agent of the United States government was in a room with an unarmed man who was under indictment in the United States judicial system and who was offering no significant resistance, and that heavily armed agent of the United States government killed him. If you do not think we are at war, there are some very troubling definitions that you might want to attach to that act. You don't want to take those tools off the table while there are terrorists out there. If you let this tool go, You will be less safe. Thank you.
0: Thank you. Michael Hayden. Our motion is, it's time to end the war on terror. We are now halfway through opening remarks of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. I want to introduce Julia, Juliet Kaim. Her resume includes a stint at the Justice Department, former Assistant Secretary of the Department of Homeland Security, the National Security and Foreign Policy columnist for the Boston Globe. You've also served as uh, Chief of Homeland Security in the state of Massachusetts. You're a faculty member at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government and often described as the Obama administration's highest ranking senior arab american female official
3: wow.
0: so wow. which of those it tells you how many which episode. of those which of those items is the most relevant american <laughs> ladies and gentlemen um, yes, I am.
3: so The proposition I am arguing for tonight is the war on terror is over. That can mean a lot of things, obviously. For me, it means one thing. A certain mindset came to be known as the war on terror, and that mindset thankfully is over. To explain what I mean, I want to tell you a story. I did re-enter government in 2006 when, when Governor Deval Patrick became governor of Massachusetts, and one of my duties was to oversee the Massachusetts National Guard. I inherited a program that had been established on September 12th, which was to put National Guard members um, on the roadways uh, leading up to our only nuclear facility, Pilgrim facility. More than five years later, they were still there, the National Guard members, uh, despite the tremendous work being done to counter the terrorist threat and despite no evidence that terrorists would seek to enter by road a heavily fortified facility. Uh, nobody involved with the intricacies of that security uh, thought that they were still necessary, but no one knew, really knew how to pivot it was it 's very hard to pivot. It took us a while, but eventually we did move on and I tell that story not as evidence that the terrorist threat is over, not at all. I tell it to say that there were other procedures that we then put in place, more aggressive surveillance sharing, better surveillance of the streets, better communications uh, that we instituted uh, instead of the 19 National Guard members rotating 24-7. I tell this story to remind you that ten years is a long time. It is a long time to fight any war, but one particularly where the enemy has changed so dramatically. And over that time there have been a whole range of shifts in every jurisdiction in the federal government that have been similar to the one I just described. So to just call the ongoing effort to dismantle, kill, and disrupt al-Qaeda and its affiliates, continuity or continuation of the war on terror, is to treat the United States and the government apparatus established since 9-11 as frozen in time. It assumes that there has been no learning, no growth, no perspectives achieved, no priority shifts, no advancements in our abilities and capabilities. It is st- assumed that time has stood still for us. Nobody, especially people who have served in national security, deny that there is still a terrorist threat. And the U.S. government, under any administration to pick up on General Hayden's point, is going to have a variety of tools to use to combat that threat. But the fact that the government continues to use many of these same counterterrorism strategies, including killing bin Laden, of course, does not mean that the war on terror and all that it entailed remain. I am here not because I have some invested intellectual interest in saying the war is over, military efforts will need to be utilized, that goes without saying. But do not forget what the war on terror was and do not forget how much progress we have made in moving past it. There is nothing soft or weak or liberal about believing the war on terror is over. It is actually the way the world is. And ask yourself, are we less safe now uh, from having moved on?
0: I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S. The motion is, it's time to end the war on terror. Stay with us. Our motion is, it's time to end the war on terror. And here to speak... Fourth and against the motion, Richard Falconrath, who has served as Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism of the New York City Police Department and as Deputy Homeland Security Advisor to President Bush. Richard, um, I, I don't know if you know this, coincidentally we lived on the same street in Washington during that period and all of the neighbors had a habit of watching your face as you would come home from work every day to try to figure out if we were in trouble or not. And I, I just wanted to congratulate you on your poker face. Oh, thanks. <laughs> <laughs> because thanks, we John. never knew. Ladies and gentlemen, Richard Falconer.
4: That was a, a scary time, and happily it's over. Um, debates like this often turn on trying to convince the audience, the voters, of a definition – and if you get them thinking about a proposition to find your way, it's clear which side should prevail, And if you get them thinking about a proposition to find the other way, it's clear which side should prevail. Uh, and this is no uh, exception to that rule. War on terror war is a, is a legal state, as Mike said. It is uh, decreed by Congress, and in fact, they did decree it in this case, with the authorization for the use of military force. And the way I understand this proposition that we're voting on here, is essentially, should we repeal or modify this in some way or another? But it's worth noting exactly what it says. It says that the president is authorized to use all necessary and appropriate force against those nations, organizations, or persons he determines, determines planned, authorized, committed, or aided the terrorist attacks that occurred on September 11th, or harbored such organizations or persons in order to prevent any further acts of international terrorism against the United States by such nations, organizations, or persons. Now, our position is quite simple, is that this should stay the law of the land. And this strikes me as clearly sensible to continue. Now, should it continue indefinitely? Who knows? I'm not prepared to say exactly when it should stop, but right now today, when we know some of the perpetrators of 9-11 are still at liberty, presumably in Pakistan, it really makes no sense whatsoever to repeal this. Now, Juliet and Peter would have us think instead about the proposition in a different way and say it's about a mindset. It's about that terrible state that John referred to when neighbors would look at a senior White House official's face to see how it was when he came home from work. That's really not the proposition here. Yes, there were lots of things. If we want to have another proposition, which was, you know, did President Bush overdo it in the first four years after 9-11? That's a whole different debate. This is not about whether we think President Bush got it just right in the first couple of years after 9-11 or not. This is also not really a partisan issue. And yeah, I worked for Bush, but I also worked for Mike Bloomberg. He, who knows what he is? I mean, he was a, uh, now he's independent, then he was a Republican, at one point he was a Democrat. This is not really a partisan thing. President Obama's rhetoric is very different from President Bush's. But the practice, the nitty gritty of what happens in counterterrorism internationally, operationally, not only is it fundamentally unchanged, Obama is tougher. He's sharper. I'll give you just one example. There is a list of individuals who may be targeted by name individually for lethal airstrikes. Under Bush, that list consisted only of non-U.S. persons, so foreigners. If we are to believe what we read in the paper, President Obama has added a U.S. citizen to that list. That individual, Anwar al-Awlaki, is in Yemen. He is a U.S. citizen. He is vulnerable to lethal strike today that are lawful under U.S. law. I submit today it makes no sense to repeal that law at this time, and thus, under the terms of this debate, end the war on terror. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Richard Falconrath. And that concludes round one of this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, where the motion being argued is, it is time to end the war on terror. So now on to round two, where the debaters address each other directly and answer questions from the audience and from me. We're here at the Skirball Center for the Performing Arts at New York University, we have two teams of two arguing this motion, it is time to end the war on terror. The side arguing for that proposition, Juliette Kayam and Peter Bergen are arguing that it never made sense to call our response to September 11th the war and that in any case, the enemy that provoked that war, Al-Qaeda, is now on its last legs. Arguing against the motion that it's too soon to end the war on terror, Michael Hayden and Richard Falconrath, their view, there are still enemies out there dedicated to hurting us, and is that as long as they are there... Calling it a war gives the government the tools and the powers that it needs to protect the people. I wanna ask a question to, to the side that's arguing that it's time to end the war on terror, and it's this. Do our enemies have any say in telling us whether this is a war or not? If they are there, and they want to hurt us. And even if al-Qaeda had been put on the run, it was clear in the documents that were recovered from Osama bin Laden's hideout that they were still trying. And as long as they're still trying, as long as it's a war to them, can we say that it's not a war to us?
1: Well, there's a very substantial difference between intent and capability. Um, I mean, sure, there was all, in, in bin Laden's house in Abdubat, there were all these blue sky plans to attack us on the 10th anniversary of 9-11. Uh, these were kind of doodlings of a guy who was basically spending five years with his three wives uh, with not much to do. Um, and uh, thinking about, you know, it was like some sort of grotesque parody of a Dr. No James Bond villain uh, sort of sitting there, coming up, at uh, a plotting mayhem. Uh, but, you know, these were not, you know, the government itself, DHS has said, you know, that there's nothing, there was nothing there, there, there was no operation. He was, he was essentially somebody who history had sidelined. And for us to sort of live in a state of constant fear that they're going to do something to us is basically to hand them a victory that they didn't even have when Richard, he was alive. Let's hear Richard. So
4: the direct answer to your question, John, is no, they don't. Whether we are at war or not is up to the United States and its constitutional authority to decide. But Peter did want something once again that he did in his opening remarks, which is try to get you to think that we somehow stand for the proposition that you should live in constant fear forever. Nothing could be further from the truth. I work for the NYPD. Our job is not to make the people feel unsafe in their communities. You want people to feel safe. That's why you show up at work in the morning and do your job. So just let's be clear. We're at war on terror. We have this continued legal status of a war on terror so that everyone doesn't live in constant fear. Okay. I'm I'm a
3: lawyer. And so let me tell you what the AUMF says. The authorization for the use of military force is, is limited to Al Qaeda and its affiliates. And it gives the president authorization to use a whole bunch of tools, including military action, but a whole bunch of them to fight al-Qaeda, those responsible for 9-11 and its affiliates. That's what it does, and that is great. But But let's also not forget their legal analysis. Their legal analysis, if you want to talk law, was actually that because it was a war on terror, Right, Congress in many ways could not limit the president's authority in a, in a number of items that we can remember that we can all go through, right? But we're not here to debate law because that's not that's Michael Hayden. it's too easy. Right, it's too easy to debate the law because actually then I'm on their side and then I shouldn't have shown up. Michael Hayden. <laughs>
2: I I just want to add, whatever whatever label we put on it, war on terror, war against al Qaeda and its affiliates, the legal authority under which we operated was against al Qaeda and its affiliates. That all we have been doing has been designed against that opposing armed enemy force. So don't be confused by the labels.
0: But do, you, but do you hear your, your opponent saying that as a practical matter, as a, almost a cultural matter, the term war suggests much more than the issue of a legal authorization, that it does reflect a mindset and that talking about a war is a great deal more than the, the, the narrow the narrow legal sense that you're talking well,
4: about. Well, it can be, but you need an actionable proposition. I mean, you need something that you actually can decide on. General Hayden and I showed up in the same government for three years. We didn't come to work with an identical mindset. We came with slightly different mindsets, and he at the time was an active military officer. I think it had even different meaning to me than a civilian in the White House. So it is a very subjective thing. So, Juliet, he's and saying
0: I... your, your definition of war is too subjective.
3: I think that's uh, a, a weird way to put the war on terror, only because... What followed from calling it a war on terror, which was not my language, I mean, that, that was the language of an administration that determined that after 9-11, we would conceive of it as a war. And it would have all sorts of implications, not just legal implications, but implications for a whole range of activities because we were going to call it a war. So it wasn't our language. It was the language of the AUMF. So to say now that we're calling it a feeling seems like you're sort of, you know, it's, a, it's just a little bit of amnesia there, I think.
2: Michael Hayden. Yeah, I'm, I'm confused. <laughs> are we a nation at war or not is the question I would ask. And we've had some commentary here about some things that were done over the last 10 years, and there's been some criticism or implied criticisms that some of these were overreactions or are not in the best traditions. I'm, I'm not here to debate that. I am here to suggest that we are not at our best when we are fearful. and and that to the degree that we are not fearful, we adhere to the best of our traditions, Lincoln's quote about the better angels of our nature. We are able to do that more freely now because the threat is incredibly much reduced. And it's much reduced because those people who did those things are largely dead. I don't think it's time to give up that capacity to give up that authority. Why, Michael, if they're mostly dead? Because Peter mentioned, he mentioned um, (laughs) Dave, because they aren't all dead, and and Peter mentioned John Brennan and Leon Panetta and Dave Petraeus giving rather rosy descriptions of al-Qaeda, I mean rosy from our point of view. They were talking about al-Qaeda in Pakistan, in the tribal region. They were not talking about the franchises in Yemen, or in Somalia, or in the Islamic Maghreb. And none of them have suggested this is over.
1: Peter Bergen. I'm glad General Hayden has conceded that so many of our principal en- enemies are dead. I mean, that's usually how you end a war, when your enemies are mostly dead. Um, we didn't kill every Nazi at the end of World War II. I mean, as a certain point. What we're, what, we're not, what we're claiming here is that it's time to end the war on terror as the principal organizing principle of our national security policy, which, by the way, cost us trillions of dollars over the past decade. And Richard said, you know, that we're not, he's not, we're not debating the war on terror as it was produced by uh, President George Bush in the first four years. Well... I mean, let's try and take that back for our side a little bit. We are, the war on terror was not the war on al-Qaeda and its allies. It was an open-ended conflict against a tactic uh, that produced a lot of enormous uh, problems for this country, including the the Iraq war and all that, the legacy we have from that. And so there is a sort of historical part to this that's important. We're not just debating uh, about what what happened today. It's about a mindset uh, which caused this country some serious economic problems, which we are still uh, trying to recover from.
4: So as I said, you know, these debates often turn on trying to get the voters to think about the proposition in a particular way. could have written it like this. It could have said, should the war on terror be the central organizing principle of U.S. foreign policy? could have said that. We could make this a referendum on how this was handled between September 11, 2001 and the elections of 2006. That's a different argument. Uh,
3: so, I mean, a couple of things on what Rich says. This argument is actually if you read it, is about the war on terror. And it's not a referendum on the, la- on the first four years of the Bush administration or the first six years or even the first two of Obama. It is about what did we mean by the war on terror? What was that definition that, that was used for so many years? And are we ready to be over? And they are doing, they're trying to convince you sort of a simplistic notion here, which is for those of us who have also served in government and national security is, is way too simplistic.
0: All right, I'd like to go to some questions from the audience. Um, Can I ask you, sir, To first of all, um, if you don't mind identifying yourself. My name is Philip Gorevich.
1: I'm a writer. My question is to Peter and Juliet. I think the other side has defined very well what they think would be lost if the war on terror, as they define it, would be ended. Can you explain very clearly what would be gained if the war on terror, as you define it, Would be ended. Thank you.
3: Honesty, descriptiveness, uh, actually reflecting what's happening out there. I mean whether the war on terror ended as we started to change just a learning process over 10 years. So the reason why not to call it a war on terror is because we know what the war on terror meant. So I have just you know, sort of asked people to remember as, as we have been discussing what that meant. It's not an indictment on everything that happened or the changes or whatever else. It is just simply today we have effective counterterrorism measures. But th- I think the question sort of might, also, might also be
0: reframed as what's the harm to con- in continuing to call it a war on terror? Well,
3: then that's my that's – my, I, I viewed the war on terror as so expansive that explains a 10-year or 8-year trajectory – I'm not going back to say, oh, look how horrible they are. I'm going back to say that's what the war on terror was. Aren't we glad that we have moved away from that? They moved away from it. We moved away. I just
2: just want to see if your opponents would like to respond. I'll I'll talk about one dimension of the expansiveness, You know, war on terror, whatever the rhetoric was. I did not have the authority to do against Hezbollah and other terrorist organizations who were unaffiliated with al-Qaeda and not responsible for the attack on 9-11, the authorities I had to deal with this well-clearly defined enemy. So the expansiveness in that dimension wasn't expansive.
0: But was not the invasion of Iraq, which had its own authorization,
2: also part of the war on terror, as they're describing it? I did, did, okay, so did the attack on 9-11 create an environment in which it was more likely that our government would make a decision to go to war with Iraq, I think that's clear. The war in Iraq was not tied to the authorization for the use of military force. People like me in the American intelligence community made it very clear that there were not operational connections between the Iraqi intelligence service and al-Qaeda, the named enemy, in the AUMF.
3: But, But
4: John, I mean, to your direct question, the answer is President Bush and his principal officers and explaining the rationale for going to war against Iraq did reference the war on terror extensively and repeatedly. Now whether that was an appropriate characterization or not, who knows, but, I mean, they did. Well, I think we do know. (laughs) Is this
2: a debate about ending the war in Iraq or ending the war on terror?
1: Well, they were related to each other. I mean, that was the way the way the war was sold was that it was part of the war on terror. That was the intellectual architecture of the war. But,
2: but again, Peter, that those are events of a half a decade ago or longer.
1: Well, we're still in, in Iraq.
2: Well, well, yeah, we are. With, and frankly, we all have to deal with life as it is, not as we wish it would have been. And so we're not. Oh, oh, come. There are. <laughs> People who are actually responsible for things have to deal with the world as it is, not as they wish it to be. And that may be the actual core of the debate.
0: All right, I'd like to go to another question. Do you mind giving us your name, too?
3: Thank you. Yes, my name is Eileen Karlbach. I don't understand the economic benefits of ending the war on terrorism, and I am tired of this recession. How will ending the war on terrorism give money back?
1: Well, I mean, it's a factual matter that we spent Peterburg. a trillion dollars at least in Iraq, right? I mean, we're, we're by winding down there and uh, no longer part of the war on terror there, uh, we're going to save ourselves a lot of money. As a factual matter, we spent half a trillion dollars on our intelligence uh, I think Juliet would have a better answer on how much we spent on our homeland security. We spent a huge amount of money on this, and we can't afford it right now. And clearly, uh, there is some belt-tightening that is needed. And if we stopped having this fearful construct of the war on terror, it would help making the hard decisions that we need to make. We are going to have to reduce the number of people in our intelligence apparatus. Mm-hmm. We are going to draw down in Afghanistan and in Iraq. Uh, and by saying that the war on terror is over, that is you know, that's going to help uh, those decisions. We, we asked... Um
0: or Slate, Slate asked its readers to submit questions to us and the, Slate selected a few for us and I'd like to, to bring one of them up because I think it goes to this side and to some degree, Richard, you addressed this you touched on this, but it's more specific His name is Peter McKay, he's actually from uh, New York City Since you believe it is not yet time to end the war on terror could you please explain what specific conditions you would have to see met to know that that time has come? No Alright, fair question Michael okay. Hayden?
2: Yeah. Um, I'm kind of with Rich. This will be something that uh, we'll recognize when we see it, like the Supreme Court Justice described something else. Everybody I know who is actually responsible for getting us to the state we are in now, which is far better than we were one, five, or ten years ago, no one thinks it's time to stop. No one thinks that we have gotten to a point where al-Qaeda is sufficiently non-resilient that it cannot regenerate.
0: Richard, why is it difficult to foresee what those conditions would be?
4: Well. Uh, it's just something that I wouldn't want to write down on paper or articulate until you have to. And so I'm quite comfortable with the proposition tonight that now is not the time to do it. Do I want to rule out that some future time, if we have a new government in Pakistan, fundamentally changed environment in the Horn of Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, might that be the conditions then? Maybe. But there's nothing pushing it. There's no, as a, one of the first questions that came from the audience, sort of, what's the harm? I'm not seeing any harm.
0: I'm John Donvan, and you're listening to Intelligence Squared U.S., Oxford-style debating on America's shores. The motion is, it's time to end the war on terror. Stay with us. Welcome back to this Intelligence Squared U.S. debate. where in the question and answer section. I'm John Donvan, your moderator. We have four debaters, two teams of two, debating this motion. It is time to end the war on terror. Right Yep, the answer?
2: I've heard uh, uh, Al Qaeda and its affiliates, and I've heard Hezbollah mentioned, but no one has mentioned in the whole evening the Taliban. Must the Taliban be defeated before the war on uh, terror is completed?
0: Which side would you like to put that
1: question to first?
0: Okay, let's put it to Peter Bergen.
1: The Taliban has to be made irrelevant and the Taliban, uh, to a large degree, is becoming less relevant in Afghanistan over time. And that's, you know, I think what we're looking at, if we pull out for a little bit, what are we actually, there are still Marxist-Leninists somewhere in the United States on some college campus somewhere. Just no one pays any attention to them. And, you know, we're at the point where al-Qaeda and its ideas, and, and we conclude in that in the Taliban, but which, by the way, Enjoys only a seven percent favorable rating in Afghanistan right now. There's nothing like living under the Taliban as a prophylactic to uh, their ideas about creating utopia here on Earth. Uh, you know, we these these ideas are becoming irrelevant, and that's why the war on terror should should be ended. I mean, we've just heard from Rich that he won't even tell us when the war will end. If it it doesn't end with the founder and leader of Al-Qaeda, the intellectual author of 9-11, which is the reason we went to war in Afghanistan in the first place, the fact the Taliban wouldn't hand him over, if it it doesn't end when it's totally irrelevant in the Middle East, if it doesn't end when it's lost the war of ideas in the Muslim world, if it doesn't end when its entire top leadership is decimated, I mean, when does it end? Richard Falconrath, is the Taliban irrelevant?
4: No, it's not. I mean, it's not irrelevant. It certainly matters a lot in the reconstruction of Afghanistan and the, in the geopolitics of that region. Uh, there's no question that they supported 9-11, the Taliban organization. They supported al-Qaeda prior to 9-11. So it's a long-winded way of saying they are not essential to uh, some sort of winning the war on terror, prevailing them. But there's no question that because of their historical legacy, they are legitimate targets for the U.S. military in what we call, are calling here the war on terror, as it operates in Afghanistan and Pakistan. Um, Ma'am?
3: Hi. Often a war is constituted with about troop levels, so I would like to know each side's perspective on troop levels in ending the war or continuing the war. Do you believe that troops should be brought out of Afghanistan, or should we continue to have troops, and for how long?
1: Okay. Uh, as I thank you, uh, my last appearance at this debate forum was arguing that the war in Afghanistan was something that should continue. With Max Boot, who was also here in the audience, I think it would be difficult for me to now change my mind, uh, <laughs> and uh, in such a public uh, fashion. And I think that we, you know, we there are things that we, you know, making sure that Afghanistan doesn't revert into a haven for the Taliban and allied groups, that is a, a very good thing. Um, you know, it was the war on terror kind of construct that got us into a war which costs us a lot more in blood and treasure where, where we were not attacked from, which, of course, was Iraq. Michael Hayden. I agree
2: very strongly with what Peter said. And I would suggest to you that the size of the American footprint there over time matters. But far more important is the persistence of the American footprint. We left that region before, and we suffered for it greatly on 9-11. And so I think Peter and I are in strong agreement that some substantial American presence there, as difficult as that is for us, keeps us so much safer that it's probably worth those sacrifices. But is that
0: is that does that constitute war, Peter?
1: Well, I mean, we, as Juliet has said, and I've said, I mean, we're not opposed to conducting, continuing um, our presence in Afghanistan and making sure that it doesn't revert into a but, safe, but, safe.
0: But we're talking about what we call it. So, would you call it? Would well, you call you it, you know, war, it's a war against
1: war. Al Qaeda and its allies. The president, President Obama, correctly redefined downwards uh, this open-ended global conflict against a tactic in, and named the enemy right in the center.
0: The people on this side uh, define ending the war on terror as repealing the legal instrument that authorized military force. I don't understand, on this side, exactly what it is that you do, what you define the ending of the end of the war on terror. Is it declaring victory and going home? Because President Bush did that on the aircraft carrier. Mm -hmm. Uh, How'd that go? Didn't go so well. I just don't understand exactly what it is that you think it, should President uh, Obama give a speech no, not, and declare victory? victory? Well, so Cohen. here's
3: what's so interesting about this. this thank is you. We're not, thank you. We're not um, asking for a, this war is over. I mean, if anything, that I, I actually think without you knowing it, we did end the war on terror and, and trying to expose how we ended it. The reason for discussing it in such an open manner is because how we talk about counterterrorism measures – it, it affects how we perceive ourselves. it clearly affects how the rest everyone else uh, perceives us in the outside world and and it's not the war on terror is not a benign statement. I mean we've been sitting here hearing like you know, oh yes, we may have gone too far and maybe this war and uh, you know it, it wasn't benign, and so maybe part of our obligation ten years later is to admit it's not a benign term. Richard feldman
4: uh, I think the question. Uh, underscores one of the difficulties in in Juliet and Peter's position on here. And if I could just sharpen it and pose it also as a question. Since we've agreed, or at least I think that Juliet concedes, we shouldn't change the legal framework that currently governs counterterrorism operations by U.S. forces abroad. You could talk about it rhetorically differently. And, in fact, President Obama could have his aircraft carrier moment right now, wherever he wanted, to go out and announce that he is announcing the end of the war on terror. Okay. Now, question: You used to work for him in a cabinet department. You could go back and work for him. Would you recommend he do that?
3: Why wouldn't? The, why would I not recommend that?
4: Max, you would. What? He would never do it. First of and all, no, the you'd be fired. Politic,
3: <laughs> let me tell you why he wouldn't. Because it took me nine months to move nineteen Massachusetts National Guard members uh, from a from a Pilgrim facility. Because the war on terror is not benign. Because this notion of the war on terror. It has uh, completely limited our politicians' capacity to move. And I think the amazing thing about this president is how much he has moved us.
4: But this gets to the right? question that so, came up so earlier. If earlier. I, just... if
3: I, I think it would be bad political advice, and he should fire me. If I told, in the same way, you know, if I told him to say the war on terror is over, not because I think it's inaccurate, that politically we, this, the public – and the way we've talked about it gives no opportunity uh, for the kinds of changes, the little changes I had to make or the, the big changes that have been made. All
0: right, let Richard come in on this.
4: Oh, I think this circles back to an earlier question, which is what, would be, what gain would come from accepting your side of this argument? And what would happen is President Obama and his advisors would say, look, I've already realized all the gains. Right. I talk about it differently. I won the Nobel Peace Prize. Uh, I don't need to do this. It's already done.
3: Right. So you agree that it's over. No. No. I mean, isn't that what you're saying? (laughs) And you're also admitting that it would be political suicide for anyone to say it. And all I'm saying is maybe we can create a space where that's not true, where we can move 19 Massachusetts... National Guard members, or we can create more stringent military commissions, or we can close the black sites, or whatever it is that we need to do. And that's actually a good thing, because it means we've changed over ten years. And-
4: yeah. Uh, my name is Josh Sepps. I'm from Sydney, Australia. Um, just in, in an attempt to sort of bridge this definitional gap about the war on terror, Um, A question to Richard. Don't you feel that over the long arc of history that maybe the greatest sort of inhibition on people's freedom is governments and not so much terrorism and and outside threats? And do you fear that maybe an open-ended war that goes forever, that you're not even able to say when that could possibly end, is more of a liability, even if it gives us more of a tool, more tools in the arsenal in the short term, that maybe the long-term liability outweighs that? How how do you feel about about being party to that? It's a, it's, it's, it's a great question. In fact, it's several questions uh, marbled together. Uh, and one is there's no question over the arc of history that governments have done more harm to human beings than any terrorist organization has. The governments are capable of enormous uh, destructive destruction against those people. There's no question about that. And I don't think t- Al-Qaeda or any terrorist group is 10 feet tall. I don't go to sleep afraid. And they are a, what I think a, ultimately a manageable problem. There is always the potential for government excess. But here I want to come back to what my colleague Mike said. There really is today a consensus on this. It's remarkable. On electronic surveillance, there is a consensus. There was not in, 19- in 2005. Today there is. Visa modernization act was passed, broad bipartisan support. Obama is all for it. Bush was for it. No problem. On detention, right? there is actually consensus on what happens now from where it was with Bush to today. On tribunals, also consensus. So a long-winded way of saying, to your question, yes, there are risks there. We must constantly be vigilant for them. But there is broad consensus right now on where those lines should be drawn across the political elite in Washington.
3: This narrative of consensus was not a consensus necessarily of choice. It was a consensus because the Bush administration lost a lot in court, because Congress— Required them to make changes, and, and that lasted into the o- Obama administration, because their own national security experts, including interrogators, uh, people in the military justice system, lawyers in the Department of Justice who didn't like the secret surveillance, were rebelling. Right? This was not so, so i 'm glad that there's a consensus, but it's just I, I challenge this notion
0: and that concludes round two of this intelligence squared u s debate. So here's where we are. We are about to hear brief closing statements from each debater in turn. Our motion is, it is time to end the war on terror, and speaking first against the motion, Michael Hayden, former director of the National Security Agency and the CIA.
2: Thanks, John. Richard's purpose in mind here tonight was not to defend all aspects of what our government has done over the last 10 years. Uh, What we're looking at is, broadly speaking, how should we conceive ourselves in order to ensure our own national security. And, and I mean no disrespect, but I'm trying to follow in detail what it is we're arguing against from the other side. And I think it's not an unfair characterization. Continue what we're doing, but we have a desperate plea to repackage the atmospherics around which, that which we are doing. And from Peter, I think I'm getting the argument that you've been successful. Back off. You've won the thing. And from Juliet, I'm getting the argument you shouldn't have been doing all those things that you were doing that Peter said were successful because it enabled you to win those things. And Peter's right massive events in the last six months the Arab Spring and the killing of bin Laden. If one were to write a history of the American Civil War, one could determine, I think, looking backward, that the decisive events took place in the first three days of July in 1863 with the fall of Vicksburg and the defeat of Pickett's Charge going up Cemetery Hill. I think historians would agree it was decisive. But there was 21 months of war left after that. And spiking the football and calling it a win and walking away from the battlefield in July of 1863 would have put at risk all that we now know have been achieved by that point. Thank you, Mike Hayden.
0: Our motion is, it is time to end the war on terror, and to speak for the motion, Peter Bergen, a CNN National Security Analyst and Director of National Security Studies at the New America Foundation.
1: We've heard from Rich tonight that al-Qaeda isn't 10 feet tall, and also it's a manageable problem, but also that we should be uh, at war against this uh, terrorism tactic until the 22nd century, uh, that there's no circumstances that he can define tonight when we should declare the, the end of this war. And as we were thinking about this question, we turned to two of the leading experts uh, on terrorism in the world uh, for some counsel. One of them said, we here in the United States certainly are much safer. Al-Qaeda still exists, but it's been massively damaged through nine years of an onslaught against them. Our defensive abilities here in the country, our intelligence, our law enforcement, our homeland security is much better. So there's no question the United States is safer. The second leading expert said just a few weeks weeks ago, future attacks are going to be more numerous but less complex less well organized, less well likely to succeed, and less lethal if they do succeed. I think the killing of bin Laden will accelerate that change. The first expert was Richard Falkenrath speaking to CNN almost exactly a year ago, and the second expert was General Hayden speaking to the Associated Press (laughs) this summer after the death of bin Laden. We agree with both these gentlemen that al-Qaeda has been massively damaged, and that there's no question that we're safer, and that this much weakened al-Qaeda is far less likely to succeed. With any of even of the small-bore attacks, it will try and pull off in the future, and that this process of al-Qaeda... The decline has been accelerated with the death of their leader, and for these reasons, and because we agree with these gentlemen and others we've outlined this evening, we urge you for the vote to vote for the motion that it's time to end the war on terror. Thank you, Peter Bergen.
0: Our motion is: it is time to end the war on terror. And here to speak against the motion, Richard Falconrath, who is former Deputy Commissioner for Counterterrorism at the NYPD and Deputy Homeland Security Advisor.
4: The easiest thing to do for us in this debate, tactically, is just sort of to decry the rhetorical excesses that, frankly, Juliet has decried of the first few years after the Bush administration. It was a very divisive time in our political life, a very troubling time, frankly. But I, I was struck today, actually, walking into this debate, I saw something that made me say I shouldn't just dismiss it all completely, which was there was a fire truck going by, uh, and it was barreling to some emergency. And on the front, they had stenciled support our troops, which said to me that the local responders, these local officials who, who are not in the military and have no extra authority gained from any of these laws that have been passed, in fact, see a certain common purpose with the military officers and the intelligence officers who are still at war in a technical though somewhat invisible uh, sense. And that's, I think, a useful way to remember this. It, it isn't, the, the, the sense of unity that this country achieved post 9-11 about dealing with this problem also was a little bit ahistoric, which is my way of saying, yes, there were many bad things that happened at the time, things that I criticize, and as Peter notes, I've written about it and talked about it, but there were also some good elements of it. If, if there was no better way rhetorically to unify the various actions of many different parts of America, the military and the intelligence, lawyers, the first responders, the rest, uh, then war on terror, that's what they came up with, and it worked all right. So on that basis, in addition to the legal arguments we've, ex- we've urged you to accept, I urge you to sub- vote against this motion. Thank you, Richard Falkenrath.
0: <clears throat> Our motion is, it is time to end the war on terror, and here to speak for the motion, Juliette Kayyem, the National Security and Foreign Policy columnist for the Boston Globe and former assistant secretary at the Department of Homeland Security.
3: They would have you believe that we simply want to repackage something, and they would have you believe that we would want to throw away laws that would have given Obama the authority to kill bin Laden. And they want you to believe that there's this sort of continuity of behavior over the course of the 10 years. And none of that is true because one, we're not saying throw away the laws, throw away the authorization for the use of military force, nor is the war on terror a benign statement. And the continuity has actually been, I think, one of the sort of, I think what's happened over the last 10 years has been sort of remarkable because it was not continuous. That what you saw over time was the American public, Congress, the courts, the Supreme Court several times, the Bush administration itself with its own internal conflicts and a change in leadership between the presidents show that it wasn't continuous, right? So now we're supposed to wake up 10 years later and say, okay, well, that was, it was good we called it that and let's just continue to call it that that because that was it's benign or, you know, it, it's just a legal matter. And all, all we're asking you to do is actually think about that a little bit differently. Remember the 10 years. Be grateful for the work of both administrations. But also realize the war on terror as a unifying force is no longer accurate or benign. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Juliette Payam. And that concludes our closing statements. And. Now it's time to learn which side you feel has argued best. Our motion is, it is time to end the war on terror. And recall, the side that has changed the most minds, moved its numbers the most, in the course of this debate is declared our winner. Here are the results. Before the debate, 41% of you were for the motion, 28% against, and 31% undecided. After the debate, 46% are for the motion. That is up 5%. 43% are against. That is up 15%. And Undecided went down by 20% to 11%. That means the side against the motion has carried this debate. Our congratulations to them. And thank you for me, John Donvan from Intelligence Squared U.S. We'll see you next time. This Intelligence Squared U.S. debate, presented by the Rosencrantz Foundation, was held at New York University's Skirball Center for the Performing Arts. Robert Rosencrantz is chairman. Dana Wolf is the executive producer. Maureen McMurray and Rob Christensen are the radio producers. Damon Whittemore is the audio engineer. And I'm your host... John Donvan. For more information or to purchase tickets to future events, visit www.iq2us.org. To hear the full unedited version or to sign up for the Intelligence Squared podcast, visit npr.org slash Intelligence Squared. You can also follow us on Twitter at IQ2US. Intelligence Squared is distributed by NPR.